Your Bible may fall open to 1 Peter, but we're going another direction now. We concluded that study last week, but I remind you that we are still pilgrims, even though we're not studying that particular theme. We will be in Psalm 61 this morning. We're going to finish out the summer with a summer study of these songs that God has given us in the Old Testament. This morning, Psalm 61, considering this theme of moving from weakness to worship. What does it mean to be secure, to dwell in security? Oftentimes, when we talk about security, we mean safety. So some of you may have a little keypad on the wall by your front door. You have a security system on your home. We, we do that to keep ourselves safe. Other times we talk more in the context of stability. Maybe you're hiking with the family at Burr Oak or somewhere and you, you cross over a stream on some rocks and, and you want to make sure your footing is secure. And by that you mean stable. You don't want a rock to teeter and you slide off and get your shoes wet. Stability is security. And then at times we talk about strength. Is it strong enough to hold us? Yesterday morning we woke up to chainsaws screaming in the backyard. Our neighbor behind us was having a couple of his ash trees cut down. If you know anything about these ash trees, they're, they're dying off quickly this season because of the bugs in them. Well, this guy is climbing this ash tree and he just throws a rope around the tree and hooks it onto his belt and then he leans way back on the weight of that belt and is swinging his chainsaw and cutting branches. So I kind of went out back and talked to the guys a little bit, just thinking, you know, I don't know if I have that kind of faith. I told him, I said, I don't stand on the top of a stepladder, let alone climb up a tree and lean on a little three-quarter inch nylon rope. Well, he was confident that it would hold that the rigging and that the rope was strong enough that he felt secure. Whether it's strength, stability, or safety in our physical security, we kind of know what we're talking about. But I would venture to say most of us also understand the idea of security in our spiritual walk, in our efforts at following Jesus in obedience as our Lord and Master. Frankly, we probably know about spiritual security better by its opposite, insecurity. In our minds, we have feelings of inadequacy because we haven't come to grips fully with what it means to be in Christ, the sufficiency of Christ that, that gives us adequacy and significance. So we're often bombarded with shame from our past. We often worry or wonder, will the job or the money run out? Will my children turn out? Will my salvation work out? The insecurities abound. In marriage, we as men often fail to step up and lead because we feel we won't do it just quite right or good enough. So we just don't do it at all. In our friendships, we aren't transparent because we're afraid when we expose ourselves to someone else, 
they're going to judge us or we won't be seen as adequate or good enough. We're afraid of what others think. In the church, we hesitate to serve, believing surely there's somebody else that could do it better. We avoid hospitality because we think our houses aren't good enough or our food prep skills aren't good enough. As we heard this morning in the Sunday school hour, we shy away from sharing our faith because we think maybe our answers won't be convincing enough or I'll get backed into a corner. I won't know what to say. And what we tend to think of as insecurity is seen as a root problem throughout so many of our relationships. It puts hurdles up to so much of our obedience. And it reveals at times the struggles of our faith. You've probably known someone who's always apologizing or backpedaling from what they say or do. They feel they need to justify everything. So they're always saying, oh, I'm sorry if, if that's not something you like, or I'm sorry if I'm rambling. Or I'm s-. And you see that insecurity, but I want us to ask, is that an us spiritually? We're trying to move from this weakness and insecurity to a place of strength and security. And here's what we're up against. Remember how Peter concluded? We have this adversary, the devil, who like a roaring lion is walking about looking to devour. Well, part of that devouring process will be to paralyze us in this insecurity. They say in part a lion's roar can be to disorient its prey. Imagine a small African gazelle or some kind of rabbit or something, and this mighty roar goes out, and it's so deafening, the animal can't tell which direction it came from, so they don't know which direction to run, and they're paralyzed in fear, and it gives that slight edge to the predator, and then, of course, we know lions roar in their triumph. They roar over that prey that's just been killed. They roar over a victory feast with the whole pride of lions, That's what we're up against, a devil who delights in our insecurity, our hesitation to share good news in the workplace for some kind of rational justification of my answer might not be right. So much of this insecurity is because we forget who God is and we forget who we are in him. And so we need Psalm 61. Listen to this text that God gave to David and preserved for us for our good today. Psalm 61. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations 
May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. Can you see how the text moves from weakness, my cry, my prayer, my faint heart, to worship? Ever sing your praise. Day by day, I will pursue this worship of obedience. We're moving from the lonely, needy insecurity to this joyful and confident security. And in between is a rock that is higher than I. So we probably get something of that longing for, I wish I wasn't so faint-hearted. And we've tasted even this morning as you sang of what it is to worship with a full heart. Now we just need to learn and, and receive by faith that in between weakness and faint-heartedness and insecurity and that joyful, spontaneous praise is a rock that is higher than I. Lest we think somehow it's up to me to get from broken lonely insecurity to worship. That happens when I'm led to the rock that is higher than I. It's the simple form of understanding this psalm. The problem and the great hope of the end and what is in between. How do we get from one to the other? And in this case, it's this well-known expression of a rock that is higher than I. How does this rock that is higher help us to understand our security? Well, to understand the security of this higher rock, the song begins with our lower need. So verses 1 and 2 describe a longing created by my weakness. It's a longing created by my weakness. I say it that way because one day the longing will end. You will not pray any longer, Lord, hear my prayer and lift me to a rock that is higher than I. Now that won't be a day in this life. That will be the joy of heaven in his presence where we won't long for a better walk, a more confident Christianity, a stronger faith. The longing will be gone, as will be our weakness. But for now, to understand security, let us see the insecurity. Hear my cry. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call when my heart is faint. This cry and this prayer demonstrate for us Hebrew poetry. You you probably have heard that these books of the Bible can be lumped into the books of the law, the Old Testament first five books. Then there's some history books that are there. And then we speak of these books of poetry. And yet you look at your Bible and you say, I don't see any rhyming words. They don't always rhyme in Hebrew either. The rhyme of the Hebrew poetry is in the meaning. So when the psalmist says, hear my cry, O God, he then rhymes the meaning in a poetic sense and he says it again because it needs to be heard again because there's a weight of its, of its meaning. There's a, 
There's a pathos here, a condition that stirs pity in us when we hear this person crying out and praying. And he says, I'm calling out from the end of the earth. What does that mean? You could look at any point in David's life, whether he's fleeing from Saul or whether he's fleeing from Absalom, and he's just never far away from Jerusalem. He never really gets to what we would call the end of the earth. But somehow this is capturing his heart and mind. He's unfolding what it is to feel incredibly insecure. I feel so far from what is comfortable, from what is safe. I'm always living on the edge. There's, there's no peace. He's calling out from the end of the earth. It's figurative language that communicates how he feels. Distant, unsafe, insecure. And then he says, when my heart is faint. This is the language of weakness. Have any of you ever fainted? I don't know that I ever have. I, I, I guess I've been dizzy or lightheaded, but never like a full-fledged fall over. Uh, we've got a wedding coming up. I often remind the groomsmen when we're standing off in the side little room ready to walk out, hey, kind of don't, don't be afraid to sway a little bit or to bend your knees because we don't want you tipping over. Uh, we don't want you to faint. It's an expression of weakness. The body says, hey, I need some help here, so I'm just going to shut down and take a little rest. Then we'll build up the strength and get you back to going. The psalmist says, my heart is faint. Now, the heart, this is, this is the person. This is, we would say things like, you know, I'm, I'm done. I can't go on. I'm, I'm overwhelmed. My heart is faint. I have to think you know something of what David's describing here. You might not say, my heart is faint when you talk to your friends. But you might say, I don't think I can keep doing this. Something's got to give. I just wish it would end or there'd be some kind of resolution. It's the not knowing that's killing me. I feel like I'm not doing anything well. Or I feel like I'm just going through the motions. You know, God seems so distant. These are the expressions of from the ends of the earth and my heart is faint that we would use in our language. It's often the reality where we find ourselves with a longing that's created by our own weakness. But the goal of the psalm is to move us from that place to the place of worship, a place of strength and confidence and security. I've seen who God is, and I know what it means to be joined to him by faith, so I'll sing his praise every day. That's where we're moving, but it starts with this longing because we see that we're weak. We see that we're, in and of ourselves, not very effective at anything. And so, the path from insecurity to security that begins with recognizing our weakness moves on to see a faith that is strengthened by biblical illustrations. This psalm packs into a couple of verses multiple illustrations of how God is what we are not. 
We are needy and weak and insecure, and God is not those things. So the psalmist begins in verse 2, saying, lead me to a rock that is higher than I. A higher rock, a place of safety, security, stability, strength. Recently, I watched a documentary about the Johnstown Flood, 1889, in the central part of Pennsylvania, where an earthen levee began to give way, and it finally broke, and multiple towns were washed away, 2,000 people were killed, and the only hope in a day before any kind of messages were furthered to the people downstream was to hear this thunderous roar and to try to escape to higher ground in the few moments that were allotted them. Higher ground, the rock of safety. But then he goes on. He says, I can make that request, lead me to a rock that is higher than I, because I do know something of who God is. You have been my refuge. Picture David fleeing from Saul, for example. And you know there's a couple of stories in the Old Testament that have to do with the caves. So David's finding a refuge, and the word is kind of stark by itself. It could just be a little collection of rocks. We could think of it as like a treehouse or something. Just some place that you make your own refuge. But he says God is more than just a rock who just happens to be there and I hide behind him. He goes on to expand that thought by saying, you have been my refuge, you have been my strong tower. You see, a refuge you could stumble upon and find for yourself. But a strong tower is intentionally designed to be a place of security and strength. And now the psalmist is saying, Am I actually invited into that place? Would you lead me to a rock that is higher than I? It would be a refuge, but it would be intentionally designed and an invitation would be extended that I would actually feel like I could ask to be invited there. Could I actually escape the loneliness? Find security in Christ? Could I actually escape the fears of all the circumstances of my life and find a refuge? Could I get away from the noise, the politics, the gloom and doom? Could I actually find peace in the midst of chaos? Because God has intentionally designed rest for us in him. The psalmist continues... Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. God's tent its where he lived. In the Old Testament, the tribes of Israel would be laid out in their geographic places when they made their massive camp, and the tabernacle was set up right in the middle. And the glory of God came and dwelt in the tabernacle, right there, literally in the midst of his people. It was God's tent. John would borrow that language to describe the Son of God, Jesus, being sent to accomplish our eternal redemption. And it would say, the Word, that's God's Son, became flesh 
and tented among us. Now, our English word is usually dwelt among us. But it's this idea of pitching a tent, being right there. David's heart says, I feel like I'm at the ends of the earth. I just want to feel close again. Lord, what does it take for me to actually dwell in your tent? Now, that's an Old Testament contradiction. Because David would have known that even when he was the king, he couldn't walk past the altar of sacrifice, enter the tabernacle, and go into the holy place with the candelabra and the showbread and the incense, and then move the curtain aside and go into the holy place where the presence of God was. He couldn't do that. Only one priest could do that once a year. So what is David thinking and asking to dwell in God's tent? What he's doing is creating a longing in all of us for the kind of welcome that we receive from our creator God through the incarnate son. David is saying, I long for a day when we would have free access to God himself. How is that possible for sinners defiled by their sin and selfishness? It points us forward in longing and hope that God's promise will be true. He will provide a spotless lamb, a perfect priest, a prophet with all truth, a king that reigns in perfect righteousness. He will make a way for sinners to be made right with a holy God through Jesus. God's tent. We find refuge and security there. Some of you know what it is to have your kids come into your bedroom in the middle of the night because the storm's raging outside and they just want to feel close. Some of you are really good parents and you let them stay in your room. Some of us are not. <laughs> and we say, you know, it won't be the first storm, son. <laughs> Let's see if we can figure this out on your bunk bed again, all right? Oh, we've probably let a few nights go by where they slept on the floor there and realized a hard floor is not as good as a soft bed, so I think I'll just head on back. But they just want to know that they're not alone, and so they come into your room, and it, there's security there. It helps. You understand what David means then when he says, I just want to dwell in your tent. I'm tired of ends of the earth living. That makes me very insecure. I want the security of knowing mom and dad are right here. And when life gets hard, we want to know that God is right here. And that's the essence of the gospel. God has come near through Jesus Christ. And by faith in him, we have his Holy Spirit. So that the most frequent promise of the Bible is, I will never leave you or forsake you. You belong here. You can dwell in my tent. And so the Psalms will paint a picture of dwelling with God forever in the fullness of joy. And here in this Psalm, we're having our faith strengthened by finding out that God is indeed our rock. He is this refuge that we found. But more than that, he's this intentional place of security and rest. 
We can dwell in his tent and we can dwell under the shelter of his wings, which offers two pictures in and of itself. The mother bird gathering the chicks under her wings. Jesus would use that example in the New Testament. David may be referring to the embroidered cherubim on the walls of the dark interior of the tabernacle. Faintly lit by the glistening candelabra, but the walls with their gold embroidery showing us the wings. Or perhaps it was the wings of the angels over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies. All these illustrations call us back to this intimate closeness where God himself says, you are mine, you're safe and secure. And maybe you need to hear that this morning. All these words remind us that there is hope. Weakness is not the final word on the matter. I may feel weak and have multiple ways of expressing that, but the great hope is there is a rock that is higher than I. So, yes, you have your story of weakness today. God wants to make sure you hear his story of rock-like strength. How do we understand the security of this rock? Number three, we realize there's a need that is met by God's faithfulness. A need that is met by God's faithfulness. have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. There is a confidence that is building here in the psalmist. One, that he's been heard. Two, that God is a God who is faithful to give good things. You have given me. And then when we look at what God has given, we see further significance. You have given me a heritage of those who fear your name. That word heritage is the word possession. You've given me something that is now my own that is somehow an object of security. It makes me feel secure. If I'm distant and weak and I need to be led to a rock that is higher than I, if I'm longing for security, I need to see who God is as a giver of good things and as a God who has given us a possession, an inheritance that somehow contributes to my sense of security. So what is this heritage David is speaking of? Well, first, we must think in David's world. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's one of the people of Israel. He's a member of one of the tribes of Israel. So he knows well the story of being Slaves in Egypt, but God promises to bring them out of bondage, but not only that, to bring them to the, the promised land, their inheritance. So that was God's promise, bring you out of Egypt and to the promised land. And then when they get there, by God's faithfulness, certainly not their own, God divides up the land and they receive the promised possession. They saw how God was faithful. And now they have received a dwelling place, a place to belong. David, David says, I'm numbered right here among those people who have received your promises. We dwell safely in the land because you are faithful. 
David is building on that history of God's faithfulness to his chosen people. When he says, you have given me the heritage of those who fear your name, he's now articulating, why did I even cry out to this God in the first place? Why would I cry and utter this prayer from the end of the earth? Why did I think it would matter if I prayed to God to lead me to a place of strength and stability? Why would I do that? Because he's always been faithful. Because the story of God's revelation to man is, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I am the one, God says, who gives you a possession, who makes you belong in Christ. As we studied in 1 Peter, who has this inheritance kept in heaven for you, and you are guarded to get there. You'll make it all the way home. Why? Because God is faithful. And our need is met by God's faithfulness. Notice one other phrase from back in verse 2. This familiar expression of this rock that is higher than I is not something we attain for ourselves. The psalmist doesn't say, I cry to you, Lord, and here's my prayer. And having prayed, I'm going to climb up a few levels and get to a place of security. No, he says, I'm weak. I'm done trying. I have to be led to a rock that is higher than I. I can't get there. That's the point of the higher than I. I have to be led there. So we don't close our Bibles and leave here today thinking, okay, here's my loneliness, here's my brokenness, here's my insecurity. Man, I, I got to do better this week. Well, you, we do need to get on this path of moving from weakness to worship. But it's going to begin with a prayer that says, God, I can't do this. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I. I can't get there, but God can get us there. This is the hope of our salvation. We can't be good enough for heaven, so God provides the righteousness we need in Jesus Christ. And he says, if you'll trust him, his righteousness becomes yours, and you're good enough. But it's also the hope of our sanctification, because we know, we know from just looking back this past week, we won't always get it right. Our great hope of changing to be more like Christ is the Holy Spirit in us working that beautiful fruit in us. So we can't, but God can. It's the gospel at our conversion and it's the gospel of the change that takes place all through our Christian lives. We need something more than us. We're good at documenting our inability and insecurity, generally. But now let's not only meet that, but let's overwhelm that with the faithfulness of our God, who stands ready to lead us to something more when we finally say, I can't, lead me. And now notice again how this song points us forward to Christ. In verses 6 and 7, David kind of changes person in the way he's speaking. He was speaking first person, 
And now he says, prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Prolong the life of the king. Well, now you know where that old expression comes from, right? When you watch your medieval movies or something. Long live the king. That wasn't just some patriotic expression of the day. It came out of the scriptures. Prolong the life of the king. It's odd, though, since we know David wouldn't endure to all generations, certainly wouldn't live forever, nor would his son Solomon. So now we're beginning to see, number four, how this psalm is a prayer that is answered in the Messiah. And that's just an old word, more from the Hebrew. We would say the Christ, the anointed one, that promised one that God would send. You see, this text is, has a greater fulfillment than the 40-year reign of David. Prolong the life of the king, give him success and prosperity, and God did. And then God's promise to David through the prophet was that he would establish a descendant from David's throne forever. So we think, oh, maybe that's Solomon. But Solomon had a great run at Israel's king, another 40 years. But that's not the fulfillment either, because that's not for all generations and forever. So something else must fulfill this cry of long live the king. May steadfast love and faithfulness surround everything that this promised king does. You see, the psalm finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Son of David, certainly. King forever, ultimately. You see, the cry and the prayer of verse 1 are answered in Jesus Christ. The loneliness and the weakness of verse 2 is met with Jesus Christ. The rock that is higher than I is God's provision of Jesus Christ, that rock of ages cleft for me. Our dwelling in God's presence, in his tent, in his heaven, is by faith in Jesus Christ who pitched that tent among us. Our possession, our inheritance, our heritage is Christ in us, the hope of glory, certain as Peter describes it. So when you pray like the psalmist, Lord, I'm weak, I can't do this. Lord, I feel so distant. My heart is faint. Lead me to a rock that is higher than I am. It's like you're singing again the old song in the morning when I rise. Give me Jesus. That's the fulfillment of this psalm. It's not you'll be better through some mysterious endowment of strength. It will be you have seen who God is and how his faithfulness is revealed in the daily strength of our risen Savior. It's not David or Solomon, long live David, long live Solomon. Thank God for the prosperity of good rulers. Thank God for 200 years of freedom in America. 
But David and Solomon were no more the hope of Israel than our American way of government is for us. The great hope of security is God sending Jesus for us. We're moving from weakness to worship, from insecurity to security. And we know all too well our weakness, so we cry out to God for his strength. We find him to be faithful, and his promises are yes and amen in Christ. And we discover security. Not because our life becomes good and easy and smooth, because we've been led to a rock that is higher than I. We stand in Christ, our solid rock, as we sang. And David, having walked this path, as he's calling us to walk, ends with a worship motivated by God's name. Verse 8, So will I ever sing praises to your name. Now, obviously, we know that the name of God represents who he is. So when God uses a name or even just a description, rock, refuge, strong tower, he is wanting us to better understand the benefit of who he is, the value of who he is. This is why we can use language like we should treasure Christ. It means we weigh the advantages and the benefits and we think there is no other way to live than by faith in this Jesus. It's a worship motivated by God's name. And what does this worship look like? I will ever sing praises to your name. It's the worship of our praise. Now we can gather and do that together on Sunday morning, but you can do that all week long. Worship is always just a reaction, a reaction to God. So when you encounter God, it could be because the heavens declare his glory. And those massive cloud formations that can cause some consternation in the Midwest, right? We marvel that that's, that, that, that's but the gesture of God's finger, like the ancient Egyptians would have said. It may be because you're in the word and you read a psalm or you go back and visit Peter because you feel like a pilgrim. You feel like the minority in this world and you're encouraged again at who God is. You see him and you react with worship. The psalmist says, I'll worship with these praises. I'll sing praises that may involve a melody and a tune. It may just be the singing of the soul. But David also says there's another kind of worship that he highlights and it's this performance of his vows day by day. When you read the Psalms, you often come across these vows. Perhaps they were the obligation that was met in obedience to the Old Testament sacrifices. Seems to be more personalized and individual where the psalmist is saying, I will do this. I will trust in my rock. I will believe that God is my strong tower. I will intentionally go into that place of rest, forsaking all that oppresses me. It's the worship of obedience. 
the performance of my vows day after day. And so the psalmist concludes by saying, I will, and I will do this always, and I will do this every day. Seems to be a different confidence, a different security, a different purpose that has gripped the psalmist. He's no longer saying, I feel so distant from God. I I just want to dwell close to you. I'm weak. I can't do this. Now he's saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to keep on praising the God who has put my feet on a rock, the God who's given me this new sense of security, not because I've changed, but because I've seen who he is and what he promises to me in Jesus Christ. The psalmist is simply calling us in this short little chorus to see God and to understand that that God who is rock and fortress and strength is a God of mercy who dwells with us and gives us every good gift, as we heard in Romans chapter 8, in Christ. Because the psalmist's goal is to move you from your weakness to worship. To get to that place where, oh yes, I have, I've seen again the mercy of God, and so I'm ready to present myself as a living sacrifice. That's the invitation. I know you're weak, and I know you have longings. I know you want to get to that place where you say, yes, use me, willing, living sacrifice. But the way you get there is by discovering the rock that is higher than you are. Come and see. Come and feel the stability of standing on a rock. Brothers and sisters, we must war against insecurity and inadequacy by seeing who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Because then we will conclude like the psalmist. We will say, oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Praise his name forevermore. That's the confidence we want. When we feel far away, and we feel so faint, the answer is Jesus the solid rock. And so, Heavenly Father, we simply pray with the psalmist, lead us to a rock that is higher than we are. Humble us to pray that prayer. Give us faith to believe that you will answer it. And this we ask in the strong, rock-like Savior who is Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.